Good morning. Uh, I have to tell you that I lied to you last week. Well, I didn't lie, but I said we had come to a close in our series called The Gospel. And it turns out that you can't silence the gospel, that it always rises up out of the ashes and no death can even hold it. And so the series continues on one more week. And what I realized is that everything we have talked about for the last 23 weeks could be wasted. And the idea of that haunted me. It really did. Because it's a waste of 23 weeks. And here's what I realized must be, absolutely must be said today. There's something that you must do with the gospel. You have to meditate on it. Now, this word meditation is, well, we don't really quite understand it. When we think of meditating on something, we think of emptying ourselves, emptying our mind, emptying ourselves, and then transcending into nothingness. But biblical meditation is not about emptying yourself, but filling yourself with something. Then over time, you keep on thinking through it, praying through it, and it starts getting into your soul. And as that happens, it starts changing you, and it starts coming out of you in the way that you live your life. And we cannot let all these beautiful truths that we've been looking at for the last 23 weeks go wasted. So, oftentimes, meditation is thought of as emptying yourself to transcend into nothingness, but biblical meditation is about filling yourself so you might transcend upon the mount of God and actually know him. And be in awe of him. And that's really what all of you are chasing. You're chasing some experience of God that makes you realize everything is okay because I have him. So, if you haven't been around for the last 24 weeks, the word gospel literally means good news. Wonderful news, joyful news. If you are hearing the gospel and it does not sound like the absolute greatest news you've ever heard, you are likely misunderstanding it. In fact, in talking with people who are rejecting Christianity, often what I find is they're not actually rejecting Christianity, but something that they think it is, but it is not that thing. And that means that for you, this idea of being filled with the gospel, well, if you don't fully know it, then you're being filled with the wrong thing. And that's very dangerous. It's probably one of the most dangerous things that we could be doing as humans is filling ourselves with something that isn't fully true. And what we've been saying is that the gospel is not like a diamond, but it's like a whole diamond mine. And you go into this diamond mine and you start exploring, and what you find is that each diamond represents a piece of Christ, a shard of who he is, what he has done, and how he absolutely changes everything for you. And through the series, we've done some serious exploring, 24 weeks worth. And what we've seen is that each and every one of us, me and you, we all have particular diamonds, this this piece of the gospel, these pieces of the gospel that we are more drawn to. In fact, if you look throughout history, the history of the church, there are periods of time where the church seems to be more attracted to parts of the gospel than others. Denominations are formed around parts of the gospel, diamonds of this gospel. And so that means that the tendency for humanity, for me and for you, is to pick certain parts of the gospel and focus in on those. And there's a reason why you do that. Because you have wounds in your life and you have longings in your life. 
And there's a specific diamond that will heal all of the wounds that you have, or the specific, the deepest wound that you have. And there's a specific diamond that will satisfy your cravings, your longings. And this became super clear to me in seminary. So we're sitting there in class, and we're trying to figure out what the center of the gospel is. What's the best part about Christianity? And the guy next to me said, it's adoption. Meaning that Christ became an orphan so that we could be sons and daughters of God. And, the prof- and a lot of people would say, yeah, that's right. And the professor said, are you sure? And he said, yes. And then the professor said, can I ask you a personal question? He said, yeah. He said, were you adopted? Literally, were you adopted? And the guy was like, yeah, I was. So here's what you have to see. This, this guy sitting next to me had a very deep longing to find parents who would pick him, who would love him, who would choose him, who would treat him as every, every way he wanted to be treated and to take care of him. And he finally found it. And when he heard about Christianity, he heard that all of those things are true and even more because of Christ. So it moved him. So for you, each and every one of you, you have something about the gospel that when you hear it, and you might not have heard it yet, but when you hear it, it just makes you lighter. It lifts you up off of your feet, and it makes you say, God, you really are worthy. You really are amazing. You really are beautiful. I thought it was weird before when people thought you were so great, but now I get it. But the key to a flourishing Christian life is to discover not just one or two of the diamonds, but all of them. And then to take them and bring them in your mind, but that's still not enough. Bring them in your heart, but that's still not enough. You've got to meditate on them. And that's what we're talking about today. Our Bible verse is from Psalm 1. Here's what it says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates. Day and night, he's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked, though, are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. All right, our first point. The gospel versus absolutely everything else. So here what we have is two polar opposites. We have this ideal man, this ideal human being, and then we have the wicked man. And these are two archetypes for paths that you could follow. And you're going to follow one or the other. And one leads to abundant life, and the other leads to abundant death. And the one that leads to a blessed life or an abundant life, this word blessed means happy. It means someone has life so abundant that they are filled with spiritual joy that cannot be taken from them no matter what their circumstances. A peace that cannot be robbed from them. Opposite of that is the wicked man who is like chaff, it says. Now, what's chaff? Well, during this time, farmers... When they were separating the wheat and the chaff, so the wheat is the good stuff, the chaff is the bad stuff. So what they do is they take a pile of both of it, because it's just too hard to separate, and they throw it up in the air. And as they threw it, the wind would carry the chaff away, and the wheat would fall to the ground, and then they would have the wheat. They sorted it out. 
So what this is saying is that the wicked man cannot stand in the presence of God, but is blown away. He's too much for him. But the other one, like the wheat, or the one who falls, falls into the arms of God, and there he meditates on who God is, what he has done, and how he changes everything. And so it said he meditates on the law. Now, what does that mean? Well, the law can refer to a lot of things, but here in this context, it refers to all the Bible. And we saw last week that all of the Bible is the gospel, that in the Bible, you're going to find a whole lot of bad news, but the bad news is there to show you what the good news is, because you don't understand the good news until you know what the bad news is. So it's there before you. So what we're supposed to hear when it says meditate on the law, we're supposed to hear meditate on the gospel, meditate on the good news. Now, Look at the wicked's path. How do you know if you're on the path of the wicked? Well, it says that they walk in a counsel or they walk in a truth. And they stand in certain ways or behaviors and they sit with scoffers. So this is meant to be understood like this. You, me, all of us, every single human has a truth. And that truth is a truth that they live by. It's entered into them, into their mind and in their heart and then in their soul. And then that will dictate the way that they live their life. In other words, we all meditate on something. We all believe something, and we are all being filled with something. And Psalm 1 says that the wicked, well, we don't know what they're meditating on. It doesn't say. Why doesn't it say anything about what they meditate on? Because the psalmist, the writer here, is trying to show you that anything other than the gospel will lead you down a path towards wickedness. It's, it's an audacious claim. It's pretty bold. It could be potentially offensive to most of the world, yet it's said anyways. Culture has a way of luring you in to its ways. And when you are lured into the ways of the culture, you think you're doing good. You think you're doing right. Because the culture is telling you this is good. This is right. The majority of people are saying, right on, you're on the right path. But how do you know if it's good or bad? Because there are ways of a culture that can be good and there are ways of a culture that can be bad. And here's how you know. You test it with the ways of the gospel. Psalm 1 is trying to show you that once the gospel fills you, it now shows you how to live your life. It's screaming at you, live this way or live that way. So the gospel doesn't just save you, it teaches you. So this truth is not only intellectual, but it gets in you, and then it comes out of you. So let me show you. Here's a few things of what we've been saying. The gospel tells us that because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us, we now live. Now you and I, all of us, we're meant to say, okay, Christ, he's my savior, but he's also my teacher. So I'm going to follow in the ways that he follows. I'm going to do the things that he do, does. I'm going to be like Christ. And so when we see him sacrifice, we say, wait, there is a pattern here. That when I sacrifice for others, when I have the mind of Christ, I sacrifice for others, they get life poured into them. The gospel also gives us eyes to see that the greatest treasure you could absolutely ever have in your life is Christ and his kingdom. And that makes you spiritually rich and nothing can be taken from you. 
And that means you can now live a generous life, not worrying about it, because who could take God and the kingdom away from you? Nobody. And that means the gospel teaches us that Christ's love will never leave us or forsake us. And that pattern enters into your marriage, where you say, no matter what we face, no matter what we go through, I'm not going anywhere. I am by your side always to the end, me and you. The gospel teaches that you have been given grace from things that you have done wrong. You didn't deserve it. It was just freely given by God. And so that informs you to say that, okay, when someone does something wrong to you, if you really understand what Christ has done for you, you say, you've done wrong to me. But you're kind of a little bit, this is going to sound strange, you're a little bit excited about it. Because you finally now have the opportunity to be gracious to someone like Christ has been gracious to you. Like, I get to do for someone else what he did for me. I'm so excited about it. Or, the gospel teaches that you have in no way earned that grace. So that means you can give your time, your talent, your treasure without expecting anything in return. This is a thing that us humans struggle with. We try to do something good, but then we hold it over people's heads. We keep watching. When are you going to pay me back for what I did? But the Christian realizes God has asked for nothing in return. I mean, my life, but he's not asking me to pay back what he's done. He just simply wants me. And so you do for others simply just wanting them, but nothing in return from them. And not only does this gospel teach you how to live, but it is your very power to live that way. So this is our second point, and that power comes by meditating on the gospel. So the the path of the blessed or happy man that leads to this abundant life that's filled with joy that cannot be stolen from any circumstance, this is found, this man looks like a tree. A tree that is planted beside streams of water. Now, There were no sprinklers back then. So a tree was dependent upon the rain to give it life, to make it flourish so that it might might have good fruit. But this tree is not dependent on rain because this tree has posted up right there next to the living waters. In other words, you need to be like that tree and post up right next to the living waters of Christ. Keep him close to you so he can always be refreshing you, always, constantly. And that means this, he is in here. So that means you're walking around with this everywhere you go, in your mind and in your heart. And if you need to carry it with you, you carry it. If you need a little pocket-sized Bible, you get it. Or you can just have a phone like a normal person and just open it up from your phone and look at it. Now, so we need to hone in on what actually meditation means. A better word is murmuring. Now, I just discovered this, and it's fascinating to me. Did you know that when people read in the past, they always read out loud? It was, in fact, very strange for someone to read silently in their mind. We even see this. So St. Augustine, in the 300s and 400s, talks about a, a, a bishop named Ambrose. And and he says, this man did something peculiar. We all watched him. He would have his Bible and his books open, and he'd be pacing the halls, and he'd be in his study, and he'd be looking in his book, but no words were coming out of his mouth. It was a very strange thing for him, because in that time, everybody, when they read, murmured. 
very quietly spoken words. Now, now here's what you have to understand with meditation. Here's what it means. You have to not only know this Bible. You have to not only know the good news. But you have to let it permeate your mind. You have to bathe in it until it gets into your heart. But still, we're not done. It's got to get into your soul. So it means you can't just know something. And in this time, the people memorized a whole bunch. But memorization isn't enough, because memorization is only about the mind. So what you see is somebody memorizing something, and they're pacing around, and, they're, and they're just, they seem to be talking very quietly under their breath, saying the same thing over and over and over again, so that it gets into their heart and then into their soul. Now, this might be a little bit exhausting sounding, and I'm going to make it sound even more exhausting, because this Bible, it's hard to understand. And we are removed from the culture from which it was written. And it was hard for that culture to understand. So you know what that means? In order to know what this says, you have to know what it says. And then you have to know what it says more. So when you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, you're like, I don't know what this means. Well, keep reading. Read through the whole Bible. And then when you read through it again, you're going to read Genesis 1, 2, and 3 with new eyes. And then you go back and you do it again all the way through. And again all the way through. If you're thinking, I read through the Bible... In a year, I'm done. You're not. You're just getting started. This is a lifelong quest, journey, exploration into truth. And this is not something that comes easy to understand. It's something that you have to meditate on. Day and night, it said the psalmist was meditating on this. Sounds exhausting, right? So what in the world would lead someone to do this day and night, always be thinking through, pondering this? Well, it tells us in our verses. When it says that the wicked sit in the seat of scoffers, this is, our, this is telling us what's happening. A scoffer is someone who is too prideful to admit to God or anyone else that they're wrong. They refuse to admit it. But the blessed or happy man is very quick to say they have done wrong. And that what's, that's what makes him so right. That's what makes this blessed man the ideal man because he's very quick to admit fault. And he's very quick to drink up the grace of God. The, the, the scoffer, so thirsty, is handed a glass of water, bats it away, say, I have no need for this. But the blessed man sees the water, and drinks up the grace of God, gulps it up, treasures it. it. He delights in it. So even before you can start meditating on the gospel, you have to do something that the Bible calls repentance, which means to turn away from whatever it is that you're doing and turn to God and make him everything for you and have him teach you how to live and then him give you the power to live that way. So you will never see a need for the gospel, let alone meditating on it, if you don't think you have done wrong. So the irony is the wicked man thinks he is right, but the right man knows that he is wrong. And that's why when someone becomes a Christian, later on in life usually, it's, if, if they're over 18 and they become a Christian, it's usually because something very difficult has happened in their life. They've had a trial, they've had, a pain, they've had pain, they've had suffering, they've had a major failure. And when you see a Christian going through tons of transformation all of a sudden, 
it's likely that they have been humbled. They have seen their sin. They have seen that they've done wrong. They've seen their failures, their faults, and they're reaching for grace. And they start looking the best that they can everywhere. They start, they're desperate for it. So they're looking through all these pages. Give me something to drink, God. Give me something to drink. And they start finding it. And they start being filled by the gospel, by the stream of living water. And then tears are coming from their eyes because they're being so filled with this truth that says, everything's going to be okay. I've seen it all. I've seen what you've done. And look what it says. You're going to be okay. They cling to it. So when that pride has been stripped, when your pride, I mean, if you don't care about this, you could likely be a scoffer. You don't think you need it. You don't see your weakness, and so you don't reach for his strength. Many people spend tons of time reading theology, theology books, spend all their time reading theology books, but there comes a time in order to meditate on God's word, where you must read the book that those theology books are about. They're pointing somewhere greater than itself, these theology books. I love defending the truth of the gospel. It helps renew my faith. But sometimes when I'm getting dry, I know it's because I'm spending too much time defending the gospel and not enough time drinking it up. I need to go sit beside the stream of water. So how do you know if you're meditating on the gospel? Well, the question is, are you delighting in it? Does it seem beautiful to you? Does it seem wonderful to you? The ideal man here delights in the gospel. And if somebody tells you Christianity is boring, they don't know what Christianity is. Christianity is all about your delights. It's all about pleasure. It's all about you seeking the thing that's going to satisfy you most, which is God. And delight is about joy. And the final conclusion of joy, do you know what it is? Praise. Praise completes joy. Praise completes delight. Praise is inner health made audible. So our new series starts next week. We're going to be in Psalms. For 15 weeks, we're going to be in the Psalms. And you're going to hear this thing over and over and over again. A command to praise God. And a lot of people think that's disgusting, that God would be so prideful and arrogant and selfish and needy to say, praise him. That's not what God is getting at, at all. God is commanding you to praise him, not because he needs it, but because you do. It's the thing that you need most in your life, and God is pointing you towards that truth. Everyone praises something. And the praise of something over God is the path of the wicked. Lure you in. Make something greater than God in your life, and you know you have, and you know you will continue to do it, and you know we all do it. It's going to start sucking you down the wrong path. So when the Bible says praise God, it's a way of challenging your heart to see if authentically in that moment you really want to praise him. And if you don't, you know what that means? It means you're valuing something over God. And you know why you're valuing that thing over God? Because you're meditating on something that is not God and is not the gospel. So your meditation informs your value, and what you value, you will praise. And so if you're having a hard time praising God, it's because you're valuing something over him. 
So you got to meditate on the gospel to see all the reasons why he's way greater than everything else in your life. And even that gives you kind of a gross feeling. And it's because in that moment, you're not seeing it. So you start meditating again. You start reading through it again. You don't think it's going to happen tomorrow and don't think it's going to happen right away next year. It could be when you're 80 years old, finally you're getting it and you're like, oh my gosh, praise God. Oh, I'm so happy I know him. But that's worth the chase. It's worth the 80 years. Praise is about showing you that there is a war over your affections. Praise is about galloping and laughter enjoy with God because you've taken a truth you put it in your mind it's entered into your heart and you keep on going over that truth until it gets into your soul and you can't help but want to worship God and the end result of all this is the man who is like that tree who's beside those living waters there's growth in his life there's strength in his life and there is fruit in his life and it's not just that this man is flourishing himself, it's that the people around him are flourishing as well because of his faith, because of what he's meditating on. You know, in the central part of Florida, there was once very rich soil that produced these amazing citrus trees. Do you know what caused this soil to be so healthy and rich? It was all these old oak trees that over years of time we're dropping nutrients to the earth. So that means that the man of God, this ideal man, can create good soil for his family, his friends, and his church, the congregation that he keeps. Okay, men, I need to talk to you here. This is very important for you to understand this. There's a statistic when a wife or mother comes to faith, 17% of the time, the rest of the family will join her at church. You guys got so quiet. When a father or a husband comes to faith, 93% of the time, the rest of the family joins him in the church. Now, men, you have to hear how important that is. You shape your family more than anyone else. You are holding these little souls in your hands. 93% versus 17%. I know you might not like to hear it, but it's true. And you got to do something about it. Because whatever you are meditating on, fathers and husbands... 93% of the time, the rest of your family will begin meditating on that very thing as well. So you're shaping them. You're shaping what they're building their life upon. And when you're bringing them to the church, man, here's what you're saying. God, you have given me this great gift, this family. Now, what I need to do is give them back to you. Because you can care for them way better than me. You are the living waters. And so you give them back to him. And guess what he does? He gives them right back to you in this beautiful way where now you are seeing them in light of who he is. And you're enjoying them in light of who he is. 
Because if you don't give your family to God, then your family will become your living waters and you will begin sucking life out of them. But if you will give them to God, he will return them to you. And all of you as a family are there, all of the trees lined up right at the stream, drinking up the waters of eternal life. Last point, the water. The man of God is always seeking his family to feast on the living waters of God. There's a story in the Gospel of John about a woman at a well. And this woman Jesus meets. And this woman is, she is drinking up men in her life. She's going from one man to the next, trying to find nourishment in them, trying to find love from them, trying to find enjoyment from them. She's meditating on them. They're everything for her. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, they will never deliver for you. You need greater waters. And then he claims to be those waters himself. He says, you'll never be thirsty again. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, he doesn't mean it only takes a little, a, a little sip of him and you're eternally satisfied. He says he will give you streams of water that are welling up into eternal life within you. And so that means you got to post up right next to him. Constantly make him the thing that you're building your life on. Constantly make him the thing that you're filling your life up with. And if you do, waters, living waters, eternal waters are flowing in your mind, in your heart, deep into your soul, and it's changing everything about you. And everything about your family. Because you post it up right next to him and you refuse to go anywhere else. Don't let the last 24 weeks be a waste. Take everything we've said and go and drink it all up. Let's pray. Father, we come before you thirsty and in great need of good news and you offer it freely to us by sending your son Jesus you gave up everything so that we might be able to post up next to you so that we now pray God that you would redirect us to the right place God don't let us waste our life don't let us go another second without having you as our everything. We need your help to do this, so show us all the reasons why. And God, when we're being stubborn, when we're being a scoffer, and we don't think that you are as great as you claim to be, show us otherwise. Whatever it takes, God, we want you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.